good to see everyone here this morning. We are in a series in the book of Judges. This is our third sermon on it, but only the second sermon directly directed from a passage. So we're going to be in Judges 2 today. And so Dan preached last week from Judges 1, and in the first part of the sermon, he mentioned this, this book is unique in that it has a double introduction to it. And it's really different from any other book that's either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the way that it's arranged. And Dan briefly alluded to some, some varying theories on it, but kind of left that uh, um, alone. But as, as I was studying this as well, scholars really debate why this is the case, that there's this double introduction, that it starts with, with chapter one and then kind of almost repeats itself in a way in chapter two. And if you read the scholars, most of them will point to it and say, okay, chapter one really looks at this from an earthly level. It looks at it from kind of a political, geographical, military perspective of where the nation of Israel is. Chapter 2 kind of looks at it from a heavenly level, if you will, is, is what God's looking down on and seeing the nation of Israel and how they are spiritually. And I think that largely holds true. I think that's, that's a good way to look at it. However, I want to propose a rather unique way of thinking about how this is structured that's a bit unconventional. So, so hold on with me on this. Now, we know the original Hebrew audience was largely an oral society. They weren't able to uh, take their bulletin uh, and, and have the text printed with them when they went to the synagogue. Um, they didn't have, have Bibles that they were able to bring with them. So they really relied on hearing the Word of God more than reading the Word of God because it was time-consuming to do that. Many of them didn't read. The priestly class obviously was able to read Hebrew and do that. But so they, they relied on hearing and these books are written in a narrative fashion. And we know that storytelling and narrative is not unique to, to our time. So a lot of the same methods of storytelling and narrative and things that we would point to, people have done for thousands of years. Now, my Hebrew professor in seminary was very passionate about narrative sections of the Old Testament and how they were constructed in the original language. And there are often clues that we miss when we read these narrative sections because, well, we don't speak Hebrew, and most of us don't read Hebrew, and I had Hebrew, and my Hebrew is rapidly fading from memory. And, and, and one of the ways that he would have us translate a, a narrative section is he would give us a passage of Scripture, we'd have to translate it, and we would have to mark it out as sections. And so we'd have this little kind of diagram that, like, okay, this is where it starts, and, you know, the direct speech, we'd push off a little bit. And then we'd come down, Hebrew, you read right to left, so that's why I'm making the motions in that way. And we had to indicate what was going on with that and break it up into sections. And we'd have to write why we broke it up at that section. And on this worksheet we had, we'd have to answer also several questions. Things like, what's the mood of this section? What do you think is the narrator's intended response from the audience as they're hearing this uh, when they do this? And one of the questions he asked that I thought was a little bit cheesy at first but I really came to find the benefit from this as I was reading Hebrew narrative and as I was doing these things, there's always a question of where is the camera pointed in the section? Basically meaning that the, the, the author, the narrator, is pointing us to different scenes as things play out. So he's telling us what's in the background, he's telling us who's speaking, he's telling us what's going on around. So where is the camera pointed? Where should the focus be is if we were directors in this situation, how would we point the camera in this story? So I want us to think of Judges, and this is where it gets a little wild, as the Israelites, season six. 
Think of it as the Israelites, season six, as the Old Testament has its continuity together. Now, season five was awesome. They finally got out of the wilderness, and then there was the battle at Jericho, which really wasn't a battle because they marched around it several times, and then the walls just fell down. They had the battle where, on the day where, where the sun stood still, and they had a great victory. There were multiple kings that they defeated along the way. And it ends with a rousing scene in Joshua 24, as Joshua comes to a conclusion, with the covenant renewal at Shechem. And Joshua challenges his people in this section in chapter 24 with a verse that a lot of you may have in your homes. We did at one point. I'm not sure where it is at this point. But he says, choose you this day whom you'll serve. Whether it's the gods that are back there or the gods where we are right now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answer back saying, well, we're never going to go back to those other gods. We're not going to continue to serve these gods. We'll serve the Lord. And Joshua says, well, you're not able to serve the Lord because the Lord's a holy God. He's a jealous God. And if you turn from him, he will turn from you. And the people say, well, well, far be it from us. We're never going to turn from the Lord. And Joshua says, okay, well, today you're witnesses against yourself about what you've said. And the people all say in agreement, yes, we are witnesses to this, that we will serve the Lord. And, 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 they, and they put up this large stone as a dedication to what they promised. And then Joshua sends all the tribes out to, to their inheritance for what they've been waiting for. And we finally know that the Israelites are going to make it to the promised land. And season five ends with the death of Joshua and his burial. And as this ends, and as the camera fades, you just know season six is going to be awesome. Because the Israelites are finally there of what they've been waiting for. And so you get to season six. And it's a cold open. There's nothing before. It just starts. And we see them going out. And they have some initial victory. And they start to claim the land. But then we start to see something a little unique happening. We start to read over and over again that so-and-so did not fully drive out the inhabitants of the land. And we read that over and over and over again. And we find that not only did not, they didn't fully drive out the inhabitants of the land, that the Israelites are starting to become subjects of the people that they were supposed to be driving out. That their sons and their daughters are, are intermarrying with, with people in this foreign land, which is a covenant violation. And you wonder, what's going on? And it ends with this scene of, of, of a sacrifice, a bokeem, which literally means weeping. Now, it again goes to the opening credit sequence. And here's where we're going to pick up today, and we're going to start our reading in Joshua 2.6 through the end of the chapter. Joshua 2.6 through the end of the chapter. So here now the reading of God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him in the boundaries of his inheritance in ten Nepharis, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, for the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then they went out after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, 
and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of the those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out from them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord, as their fathers did, or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning in this passage of scripture. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to that which you would have us to learn. I pray that it would lighten and convict us, and that just as your promise, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, going back to this TV show analogy and how this fits into this double introduction, I see this section starting with the, with the camera on the view of, of, of an older man. And as it pans out, we see that he's in, in his priestly garments. And, and we see the, the completed temple around him. And it's pan, then it pans to the faces of the people that are in the audience. And they're listening intently and somewhat with shock at, at, with what's going on. And, and then it cuts to a young man who's working in a field, who will find out is Othniel. And then a subtitle appears at the bottom of it, approximately 550 years prior. And we see the summary of the action and the summary of the story and how we're to think about it before any of the action takes place. And it's really like one of those murder shows where it shows you who the victim is and shows you who the murderer is but you follow along with the procedure as they try to find out what happened. And so the passage this morning really only speaks of two things. And the outline is very simple this morning. It's got two points. Number one, Israel's apostasy. And number two, God's grace. First of all, I want us to look at Israel's apostasy. And look especially in verse 10 of chapter 2. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done from Joshua. Another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Joshua. Now just reading that, you go, what? They didn't know Yahweh or the work that he had done before that? Joshua just died, and then the elders that were with Joshua in that generation had died. So at most, based on the longest timeline, we're just scratching 80 years from the Exodus. And this follows exactly what Dan preached last week about a fading faith. This week, we have a faith that's faded. It's gone. There is no more faith there. 
Now, of course they knew about Yahweh in an intellectual sense. They'd heard the stories, but this Hebrew word for, for know there carries this semantic sense and this range of to recognize, to give thought to, to regard. In this case, not knowing involves more than, than lacking information. It's a refusal to accept the obligations entailed in that relationship, specifically this covenant relationship that God had with his people. So they knew that there was a God called Yahweh, but they chose to pay attention to something else around them. And there are three reasons I think this is true. So if you want to add to the outline, there's three subpoints to this one. Well, they may not be openly expressed in the text of these things. I think those that understand Jewish law and understand Jewish tradition, while they're hearing this read to them, would understand immediately why this happened. First of all, the older generation failed to teach the younger generation. The older generation failed to teach the younger generation. The covenant community had failed to keep alive the memory of God's gracious actions. So that meant the priests had to fail in the instruction of God's people in the law. The system of festivals, memorials, and other customs that were to pass down the rich spiritual tradition from generation to generation must have stopped or was reduced to a mere formality. And what happens is when, when these people lose sight of God's grace, they lost sight of God and any sense of obligation that they had to him. And so all that follows in the book of Judges is a result of this consequence of Israel's loss of memory. The older generation failed through outright disobedience and not fully taking the land that they were promised. And I'm sure the conquest of the land was difficult, even though God had promised it to them. It was hard work. It required battle. Maybe they thought, it's okay. We've taken about 75 to 80% of what we've got. This is good enough. These people aren't a threat. Um, it's more land than what we've had. Maybe we can learn something from them. But that generation had experienced God and seen the things of God. But the younger generation hadn't. So they already set the tone in that believing and disobeying God was okay. My church history professor in seminary said this many times as we progressed from uh, the, the early church up till now, is that God has no spiritual grandchildren. And what he means by that is each generation has to believe for themselves. The belief of the parent is not necessarily passed on to the child. And for them to believe, they must see God. They must be taught about the things of God. If you have your Bibles with you or a device, turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy represents the second giving of the law for the generation that had come out of the wandering in the wilderness and getting ready to enter the promised land after, after their 40 years of wandering. So the law was given to them a second time. And this section, verses 4 through 5 of what we're going to look at, contains one of the most fundamental statements for the Israelites, the great Shema. And it talks about how they're different, that they're unique, that they were to teach the next generation, that there's only one God that they serve. We're going to look at Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandment which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your soul, and with all of your heart, and with all of your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The law was to be continually taught from, from an older generation to a younger generation throughout the day, during times that were specified for this, and during things that were both routine and mundane. There were to be reminders that the Israelites were different, that they were covenant people of God. They had one God, that they were to love him with all of their heart and with all of their soul and with all of their might. Instead of Israel taking over the land, the promised Canaan land that had been given to them as their inheritance, Israel instead was becoming Canaanized. There was becoming no distinction between them and the surrounding world. And this begs the question, what are we teaching our children? This is why we focus so much on our children's ministry here, and why it's taken up so many hours of discussion lately as to how we can best do that, especially in the context of this new space. But who is primarily responsible for the discipleship and teaching the word of the Lord to children? It's you, parents. You are primarily responsible for raising your children in the knowledge of the Lord. They see how you act. They see how you live. They know if it matches what you say and what you do on Sunday and what you do the rest of the week. And they're forming their opinions about God and what a life lived for God looks like by watching you. So what and how are you teaching them? Also, I would say that the church has a responsibility in this matter as well. And we want to partner with you in this. But we cannot do it alone. The church is never to be a substitute for the parents' job in raising their children for the Lord and teaching them the ways of the Lord. Now look at me with verses 11 uh, through 13, as it gives us more ins insight into Israel's apostasy. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods, from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So they turned their eyes to other gods. Why? Well, the land that had been given them as inheritance was a very fertile land, an agricultural land. And the Israelites historically had not been an agricultural people, especially in their most recent history. They'd been slaves in Egypt. Then they were brought out of Egypt. And then they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. They fought several battles to get to the place to where they were able to take the inheritance in the promised land. But in Canaanite in theology, Baal was a god of storm and fertility. And what do crops need to continually grow? They need water. Ashtoreth was Baal's female consort. She was the goddess of love and war. So in Canaanite theology, the way they would teach it, is Baal and Ashtoreth needed to, to get together, to be fruitful and multiply, to produce a fertile, crop-bearing land. As, as one commentator wrote, and, and this comment made me laugh, Canaanite theology didn't allow for any let go and let Baal. Part of the worship of Baal was to encourage these two to get together and do their thing through sacred prostitution. 
this sacred prostitution was somehow looked upon by the gods and it encouraged them to say, okay, we need to do this same thing, this like behavior, so that rain would come and produce a fertile land. And this was a slow fade away from the covenant renewal promises that they'd made just several years before from a gracious God who had made everything and had promised them bouncing and blessing instead of this fertility cult with these deities being represented by overly sexualized forms and figures of worship. I see two other things that further contributed to Israel's apostasy in this passage and their understanding of it. The second thing, or the other part of this, is they were looking in the wrong direction for their success. I can imagine as the Israelites finally crossed over, and we know this, the spies had said how, how great the land was, the land flowing with milk and honey and, and the size of the, of the fruit and all of this stuff. But they saw these bountiful crops and the livestock in this area. And these people thought, well, the people that inhabit this land, they must be doing something right because they've been keeping this place uh, pretty nice. So, yeah, Yahweh got us here. But if we're going to survive in, in this land, maybe we need these gods, these deities, to survive, all while forgetting what was promised to them just a few years earlier. In Deuteronomy 28, we won't take the time to read that, but they had the promise of rain. They had the promise of blessing. They had the promise of abundant livestock and crops if they just obeyed the Lord. And that's begs the question for us. What are we looking to for our success this morning? Are we looking to the ways of the world? Or do we look to the promises of God and the testimony of of scripture. And in my own life, I can personally attest that it's very easy to look in the wrong place for success and to measure success in the wrong way. Life gets busy. I need more hours in the day. So what's the first thing that gets cut? Well, I don't have time to read the Bible and pray this morning, so I'll cut that, but I'll get back to it. But I just need more hours to be successful in school or at my job. But that faith starts slowly fading that God provides blessing in my life. And instead, I start focusing on my own efforts. Then you start to think, well, man, it'd be nice to have more time on the weekend instead of doing this church thing. I mean, is there anything in the Bible that actually says that I have to go to church on Sunday morning and do all of that stuff? So I'm really not forsaking the believers if I drive around in my car and listen to the sermon at two times speed while I'm doing the other things that I need to get done. I'm hearing the part of the service that matters. I mean, if the pastor only understood everything that was going on in my life, he'd probably tell me the same thing. Stay home, get some rest, just listen to the sermon, you'll be okay. And then you just push harder and harder and you try to get through this. And then you, once you realize the success you have, then you can get back to the things of God. The problem is, is most of the time, it takes something to wake you up to get you back to the things of God. Because you've got your eyes on the wrong thing and what success is. Success is a measurement of life, not devotion to God. The third thing that contributed to Israel's apostasy is they became increasingly enslaved to sin. What they found were, were new and foreign practices, things that they hadn't really been exposed to before. And just like any sin, the first glimpse of it, the first, the first dabble with it, is it's exhilarating. It's something new, it's something different, it's something that you, you've not been around. Neurons are firing in your brain, and you begin to rationalize, well, well, if something is, is, is this fun and this good, then, then, then God wouldn't withhold this from me. But you fail to see that you're headed straight forward to a brick wall. 
And that the sin that seems so fun at first is something that's about to control your life. Now, we can speak of sin in general language or in any number of ways. But I think that something that's especially apropos from the Canaanites to our day is in regard to sexual sin. It's rampant. It's all around us. You can't seem to avoid it even if you try. And it's not just the world that we're looking at. I'm talking about the church. I I, I looked at numbers, and 68% of church-going men admit that they view pornography on a regular basis. Unfortunately, the numbers just aren't out there for women. But Christian colleges are starting to give us some data on this, with 33% of women 25 and under saying that it's a regular pattern for them. 47% of families, and these are church families, report that pornography is a problem in their home. And pornography increases the rate of an affair by 300% compared to the general population. You see, our church is becoming Canaanized, just like the Israelites. But unlike the ancient Near East where this was practiced in the open, this is a sin that we hide, that we keep to ourselves so that no one knows about this. And we have ways of keeping this hidden. The world tries to tell us that that this is normal. Embrace it. This is good. This is something that, that, that doesn't cause you any harm. Yet study after study is coming out that's showing that this does affect us. It affects us physically. It affects us physiologically. It changes how we think. And one of the things I would say about this is we're so focused on what the world is doing and the sexual behavior of the world that we fail to see the sin within our own church communities. So maybe, just maybe, while we're focusing on what we don't like about the world, maybe we need to clean up the church first before we can start passing judgment on anything else. And to those of you who find yourself in any type of sin this morning, do what we did this morning. Confess, repent, and believe in the forgiveness that's offered through Jesus Christ. Because there is an assurance of pardon through Christ. In verses 14 and 15, we see what Israel's apostasy brought upon them. And that's judgment. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Now, we don't like to talk about judgment very often. It's not a popular topic in 2023 in the church. It doesn't really pack in a lot of people into the seats. But... We do have a clear violation of of right and wrong, that a punishment should fit the crime. And based on the covenant violations that God had laid out throughout the book of Deuteronomy and even before that, delivering them into the hand of the enemies was the punishment that fit the crime of their covenant violations. Yet God did something remarkable. In spite of all of the sin of Israel, In spite of their willful and heinous covenant violation, God raised up judges who, in verse 16, saved them out of the hands that those that plundered them. And this is where I really want to to talk about this morning, is number two, God's grace. God's grace. Israel did nothing to deserve this. Israel did nothing to deserve God's grace or these judges. You'll see various... When you look up the book of Judges, you'll always see a circle. And you'll see various labels put on these circles. And not all of them are quite the same. 
but some of them will include the word repentance. Yet, through the study that I did this week and looking at this passage, I think there could be a very strong argument that there is no true repentance found in the book of Judges. For even after the Lord raised up a judge, let's look at 17 through 19, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the ways in which their fathers had walked, but obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So God, out of his sheer love and compassion for his people, heard their groaning and their affliction, and then in the oppression that they were going through, and chose to act on their behalf. God sent an imperfect judge and was with the judge to bring them a respite from their distress. Yet even after this, even after we read through the various judges, the land had rest for 40 years, the land had rest for 80 years, and so forth, they went back and were more wicked and were more awful than the previous generations. Although all the judges served actively as Yahweh's agents of deliverance from foreign enemies, not one of them had the moral or the spiritual constitution or ability to launch a crusade against the true enemy within the Israelites, to denounce the idolatry of the nation, or to call the people back to Yahweh. None of them acted in that priestly role. So I would argue that the cycle is one of apostasy, distress, God's gracious deliverance, back to apostasy. I don't think there's repentance. There's no obedience from Israel that merits the deliverance that comes from any of these judges. Only God's mercy and his compassion for his people and the everlasting covenant that he made and guaranteed by himself is what had made him do what he did. But do you notice this? The Lord was with the judge, and it is God alone working through this imperfect person to save his people from their enemies. The stories of the judges point us and point the reader or the hearer to, to someone greater, to something greater. This book begins us to prepare to look for a judge who will not die, but will secure the obedience of his people forever. The judges point us forward to the person and to the work of Christ. The one who will deliver us from the enemy, who will provide for our obedience, who will secure our inheritance for us. He's the perfect judge. Through his life, death, and resurrection, it has enabled us to be partakers in his everlasting covenant. This is a paragraph from a commentary, and, and I wanted to read it because I couldn't find a better way to say it. God graciously calls his people to covenant relationship with himself. This relationship is the highest privilege imaginable. And when the recipients of grace hold their divine benefactor in contempt, abandoning him for other allegiances, the God of grace is rightfully angry. Second, the impassioned God tolerates no rivals. The believer cannot serve him and other gods. To do so is to trample his grace underfoot. Third, God is gracious still, often treating his people not according to what they deserve, but out of his boundlessly merciful heart. So the book of Judges presents the picture of a nation who are supposed to be called the people of Yahweh. 
but they were seemingly determined to throw off that title every chance they get, if not abandon it altogether and destroy it. But the Lord will not let that happen because of his covenant. He's rescued these people from evil and from Egypt. He's brought them into the eternal covenant. He's given them the land of Canaan as their inheritance. And the final analysis of all this, God cannot let the program that began, they began stop. The mission of grace to the world depends upon the preservation of his people. So against all odds, and certainly against Israel's own actions and what it deserves, the nation survives the dark days of the judges. Reminds me of a quote, likely part of a song from the early church that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now we said this many times in, in the introduction to this, that Judges is, is, a, is not a pretty book. It's violent, it's shocking, it's terrifying. It, it's oftentimes something that we just want to look away from. It truly shows the depths of the depravity of man. And when read, looking at the actions of people, that certainly is true. But the judges are not the heroes of this book. And if we start our study of judges looking at this with the judges as the heroes of this book, we're going to miss the book, point of the book entirely. But Judges is a wonderful book. Because throughout the book of Judges, we see the true heart and we see the nature of God. That God doesn't just respond to some mechanical formula of obedience brings blessing, and disobedience brings a curse. What we find is that Yahweh deals in grace. So to my friends here this morning that have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, do not ever doubt the love that God has for you. It's an, inter it's an internal, unending, enduring, covenant, steadfast love. In your moments of despair and need, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of her faith, who sits enthroned at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. God alone is the true hero of the book of Judges. And when we read it and we study it in that light, its beauty shines even through the darkest pages as we turn through it. As we see God's faithfulness to his covenant and to his people that does not rely on anyone else but himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your eternal, steadfast love that you have so graciously given to us. We thank you that we've been brought into your eternal covenant where we can claim your gracious promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. I pray that we would walk worthy of the covenant into which we've been called this morning. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.